Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you take your Bibles and open them with me to the book of John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. We began a series a few weeks ago in the Gospel of John. Looking forward to what we would learn from it, what God would teach us through His Word. If you're there, then would you stand with me as I read for us John 1. Verses 19 through 28. When I reach verse 28, after I read that, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. From the very beginning of the Gospel of John, we've been given some great introductions, an introduction to the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the one who is the true light, the Word that has become flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What an introduction John has given us to Jesus Christ. He's also introduced us to a man whose name was John. This John is not the same John that 
as the author of the book. So the author of the book is the Apostle John. He has introduced us to this John whom we would call John the Baptist. If you've been keeping count in these first 18 verses, John has already been mentioned twice. We know that John the Baptist played a significant part of God's plan of redemption. The true light was coming into the world. The Word became flesh. John, however, it says, was not the light. And he was not the Word. He served as a witness to bear witness about the light, to testify to the light, to promote the light, to exalt the light, and to glorify the light. To let the light shine with all truth and glory so that people might know the light, so they might receive Jesus and believe in his name. John is significant because he was sent by God. He was commissioned by the Almighty to think of the grand plan of God established before the foundation of the world would first be heralded through this man's witness. And God had so designed it that all might believe through this man's witness. It may be easy for us then to elevate John. How special, how important, how significant is John? Yet John was not about pointing people to himself or to his ministry. John was not about self-promotion or making a name for himself. He was not like that little child maybe that we would know who is always saying to their parents, look at me, look what I can do. John, you are really impressive. You've gained quite a following as if that's a proof of his credibility. John the Baptist didn't have trucks or buses or airplanes with his name plastered on it, saying, John the Baptist Ministries. Look at how successful, look at how productive, look at how impressive he is. No, John was not concerned with any of that. Why? Because John knew what Paul would pen later to the church in Corinth, when Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. When it comes to fallen human sinful nature, this can be one of the most elusive and difficult things. What we proclaim is not ourselves. You want to get someone to talk? How easy it is when you get them talking about themselves. In fact, how much of your inner dialogue, and I think you have an inner dialogue, do you ever talk to yourself? How much of your inner dialogue is about you? How difficult it is to 
deflect attention away from ourselves. And we might do that on the outside, right? We might want to deflect attention away from ourselves on the inside. We can do that on the outside all the while on the inside, really craving attention. (laughs) There's a mantra that the world says, if you've got to look out for number one, can become our default mode, but we proclaim not ourselves. We need to get over ourselves because we are not worthy of any kind of proclamation. We are not worthy of being prioritized. Our aim is to get out of the way, not draw attention to ourselves and to make others think about us or focus on us. We can even twist this around sometimes when we throw a pity party. Do you ever throw a pity party for yourself? Woe is me. I have it so bad. My life is awful. We feel sorry for ourselves. And we make it known to other people just how lowly and miserable we are. Just like that child who might throw a pity party for themselves. What do they want? They want attention. It's no different for those who are more mature but still throw pity parties for themselves. What do you want? You want attention. But what we proclaim is not ourselves. John was sent by God as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. Now, The Apostle John is going to double-click, as it were. You're kind of familiar with that phrase, aren't you? Double-click. If you've ever worked with a computer, you double-click on something and it opens a new window or opens a new box. John is going to double-click on this idea. John is a witness. He's going to expand on what John's testimony is like. You see that here in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. So I've told you he is a testimony, and now I'm going to tell you what his testimony is like. And John was ministering and bearing witness about Jesus, and he was getting noticed. But what John proclaimed was not himself. And he was committed to that, just as we should be committed to that as well. He didn't crave approval, he didn't crave attention, and he didn't crave applause. So how is it that John refused to proclaim himself? We see it in these verses here. This is our outline. You can follow along if you find that helpful. Number one, first we read about John's confession of who he is not. John's confession of who he is not. News about John the Baptist had spread, spread all over uh, Israel, spread amongst the Jews, made its way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the capital city there of Israel. And such attention and such notoriety brought an inquisition to John. And so here it says that when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, so here is this group of people that 
are designated as the Jews. Now, the Apostle John, in his gospel, uses this term, the Jews, at various points to describe different people. Sometimes it can be used favorably, but most of the time it's used unfavorably. Most of the time it's used to refer to those who actually oppose Jesus, oppose what he is teaching, oppose what he is doing. And specifically, here we see it, these Jews that sent priests and Levites have some authority. Not just anybody can send priests and Levites, only those with some authority can send priests and Levites. So most likely, when John says the Jews here sent priests and Levites, he's talking about Jewish leaders, Jewish authorities there in Jerusalem who sent the Levites and sent the priests to John. This could very well be what's known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a council of 70 members that had authority in Jerusalem. And we'll see them later on as we work our way through the Gospel of John. But here they are, these Jews, that are sending these priests and Levites. Why priests and Levites? Well, it could be that they thought the priests and Levites might have some sway over John the Baptist. In fact, John himself was a Levite. And his father, if you remember, specifically from the Gospel of Luke, served in the temple as a priest. So maybe there was a sense where these priests and Levites might have some sway over John the Baptist. It could also be that the priests and Levites were those who knew the ins and outs of baptism. They were experts on baptism. What was John doing? He was baptizing. So who do you send to inquire of John the Baptist? You send those who know about baptism. So it could be that's why they are sent to him as well. But here is this initial question they ask him. Who are you? And it's a loaded question. It's not just a question of identity, like make yourself known, prove who you are, show us your identification so we can verify who you are. This question, who are you, entails an underlying question, and it's this. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that we have been waiting for? The one who was foretold of in the Old Testament? Are you the son of David, the king, who will free us from this tyrannical rule of Rome that we are under? And the Apostle John here then wants to underline and underscore John's response. You see it there in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Confessing and denying are both important themes in the book of John. They always revolve around Jesus Christ. So John confessed positively, and he did not deny. He willingly, in one sense, denied himself, but on a positive note, he did not deny Christ by his answer, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Even John the Baptist's denials that he was the Christ constituted part of his positive witness to the true Christ. 
By him saying, I am not the Christ, what is he beginning to do? He's beginning to point people to who the real Christ is. This is how John begins to openly confess Jesus. He first says, I am not the Christ. Would you ever consider that that's a confession that you might need to make? Would we see that confession, I am not the Christ, as a safeguard against denying Christ? So, have you ever said that? Have you ever said that to yourself? I am not the Christ. Such a confession might change you. It might transform the way you think. It might even have an effect on the way that you live. What were to happen if this week, every morning when you woke up, that this was your confession? I am not the Christ. Start your day that way and see how things might be different. See how you might then live your life for Christ. See how you then might treat other people in your life if you were to confess, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one to be worshipped today. I'm not, the, I'm not the one that receive any glory or any honor. It should all go to Jesus Christ. I am not the Christ. The priests and Levites, however, they weren't satisfied with that question. So they continued to press him. What then? Are, are you Elijah? They knew this promise from the book of Malachi. If you have your Bibles, just turn back. There are a few books. Malachi is the last prophet, the last book of the Old Testament. In fact, these are the last few verses. So Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Think of this. This is the last words here of the Old Testament. A promise. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So do you hear the promise? There's a great and awesome day of the Lord that's going to come, and before that I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. And so they come to John, and they say, are you Elijah? Elijah, remember, is one of the major prophets from the Old Testament. And if you remember, Elijah was a prophet who didn't experience death. Instead, he was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind, even a whirlwind of chariots and horses of fire. It could be that in this question posed to John, the Jews were looking for the return of Elijah in the flesh. So was John the return of Elijah in the flesh? Was he the incarnation of Elijah? No. It's interesting, though. Wasn't John the Baptist Elijah? What does Jesus say about John the Baptist? Here again, you can go now to the book of Matthew, chapter 11. Matthew 11. 
Jesus says something interesting about John the Baptist. Matthew eleven thirteen and 14. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So Jesus there is saying, John is the final of the prophets, right? And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what is Jesus saying and what is John saying? John seems to be contradicting Jesus. Jesus said that John is Elijah. But John here is denying that he is Elijah. Jesus recognized that John did minister in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, but he is not the reappearance of Elijah. It could also be that John did not detect as much significance to his own ministry as Jesus did. Remember, he's pointing people to Jesus, not to himself. And so I think it's understandable why John would answer no. He's not the reappearance, the incarnation of Elijah, but he has come in the spirit and power of Elijah, as was promised in Malachi. But another specific question comes to John, are you the prophet? This goes back again to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you have your Bibles. Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever does not, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. There the Lord is promising this final prophet, the prophet of all prophets. The prophet who is prophesied there is no one other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the better and final Moses. It's why on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice of the Lord comes out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, because he is that prophet. One after another, John has made a denial of himself as one of these prominent figures from the Old Testament. And notice how John answers with many of these, his reply is a simple no. His answers are short and sweet with no further explanation. It appears that John does not like to answer questions about himself for what he proclaims is not himself. It still wasn't adequate for his interrogators. You told us who you are not, John, but who are you? Leads us to this second thing we learn from John. John tells us the confirmation of who he is. The confirmation, John's confirmation of who he is. Remember, the priests and Levites had been sent from these Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. They can't return empty-handed to these people. Imagine them going back to this council, this Sanhedrin and them asking, did you find out who he is? Only for them to say, no, but we know who he's not. What good does that do them? They want something more. They want something further, more explanation. And so they press John the Baptist 
again. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And then there's one more question. What do you say about yourself? Okay, John, tell us about yourself then. They open the door for John to define himself. Who do you think you are? What importance do you have? How would you identify yourself as if John had the right to define himself? Look at what he does. This is amazing. This is verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Define yourself, John. Tell us who you are. All right, I'll tell you what God says. I won't tell you who I think I am in and of myself. I will tell you what God says about me. Here, let me quote some scripture. Specifically, he's quoting Isaiah 43. John has no authority in and of himself to define himself. He sees that as God's authority. I will let God's word tell you who I am. You shouldn't listen to me. You should listen to him. And so maybe here there is a secondary point of application that we need to draw out from this when John does this. Who gives you the right to define who you are? Do you bear that right to say who you are? Or does God have the right, the authority to say and define who you are? That should actually be something that's comforting. The world hates that idea. The world wants to define itself. The world wants to say, I'm able to define who I am in and of myself, and let me tell you who I am. But when God defines us and tells us who we are, it's freeing for us then to live our lives for him. It might not always be what we want to hear, but it's the only way for us to know him. So what does God say about John? Well, Isaiah 40, which we read in our scripture reading this morning, is the beginning of what is known as the book of consolation in Isaiah. It starts with those words, comfort, comfort my people. Do you need consolation? Do you need comforting this morning? Here is this imagery that comes with this comfort. I am the voice of one crying out, where? In the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Wilderness is Exodus imagery. You remember the Israelites wandered in the desert, in the wilderness, for 40 years. Imagery when the Lord had brought his people out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness to redeem his people and lead them into the promised land. So John here is recalling this Exodus imagery, and what is he saying? He's saying, this is the new Exodus. I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. I'm making this announcement that God is about to redeem his people from their captivity as like he did in the days of Moses, 
So now he was going to do again. The desert, the wilderness, this barren land needs to be ready for the coming of the Lord. This wilderness is a perfect picture for the human heart, isn't it? What's there? Nothing. It's dead. It's a wasteland. And what needs to happen? Well, a road needs to be made in this wilderness, in this desolate place, a highway, in fact. Maybe you've driven on highways or roads where it seems like they've cut this highway out of mountain or rock. You can see the, where they've bore down into the rock to place the explosives to blast the, the mountain to smithereens so that way they could put a road there or a highway there. It's, in fact, the same thing that John is talking about. John the Baptist's ministry was a ministry of repentance. He is calling people to repent. He is saying, the Lord is at hand, repent. And what's going to happen in order for this highway for the Lord to be ready? Mountains are going to have to be leveled. All of the rough terrain is going to need to be made smooth. All the uneven ground is going to need to be made level. This is the work of repentance in people's lives. Where the mountain of sin that, was, that had accumulated in our lives that was there because we are people who are sinners. God was saying through John the Baptist, you need to repent. Those places need to be leveled. They need to be brought down. This is going to be a highway of holiness. And it's a major work, a major un undertaking of monstrous proportions, but absolutely necessary to prepare the way of the Lord. Because then what happens? It goes on to say in Isaiah 40, verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John seeks to take all of their attention that has been placed upon him as the messenger, and he places it all back upon the message. You want to know the messenger, he says to them, but what's really important is the message. What will you do with this message? Will you accept it and will you repent? Or will you reject it and stay utterly dead in your sin sins? But they don't want to engage with the message they really do not want to have to give an account for their sin. Going after the messenger is much easier. Perhaps more effective to get their desired outcome. But it doesn't take into account the judgment seat of God. John's questioners have become so preoccupied with him they've completely missed what was happening in the wilderness in which John was preaching and baptizing. There's more at stake in John's baptism than they were aware of at the first. The Lord is coming. Repent. 
and let every heart prepare him room through the leveling and the removal of your sin. And how much more scandalous now this message that the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, has taken our sin upon himself in order to redeem us and make it so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Turn from your sin. Turn to the one who forgives your sin by taking your sin upon himself and dying on the cross. Third and finally, we read about John's conviction of Jesus' superiority. John's conviction of Jesus' superiority. Is there ever a task that needs to be done and you might consider that task beneath you? There are lots of things I'll do, but I won't do that. Maybe you work with someone that says, that's not my job. It's not my job description. Somebody else can do that. Let them take care of it. I've got my own stuff to do. In John's final answer, we see how highly he thought of Christ and how what he proclaimed was not himself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Verse 24, these priests and Levites, it says now explicitly, they have been sent from the Pharisees. The way that's written, it could also be that there were Pharisees in this group. But they're asking them then this question, then why are you baptizing? If you aren't the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? So the question here is, who gave you authority to do what you're doing? Who says that you can do this? The Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? Well, we we would recognize their authority, but... What gives you the right to do what you're doing? What does John the Baptist say? Just in a nutshell, what does John the Baptist say? I'll tell you who gives me the authority to baptize and do what I'm doing. It's Jesus. That's who gives me authority to do this. I baptize with water. Well, that's merely a pointer. That's merely pointing to a greater baptism that's going to come. A baptism that we'll read about, a baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus provides. John says, I just have this baptism of water, but there's someone among you whom you don't even know. The questioners lack the knowledge to acknowledge as Messiah the one who is among them. They are so blind they don't even know that he is among them, that he is before them. They do not see him. They've been so focused on John, they've missed the message, and they've missed the one that they are supposed to be focused on. But what does John say about this one who they do not know? Jesus is incomparably better than John. Jesus, even though he comes after John, is far and away more superior than John. Jesus' superiority and Supremacy is incomparable. The action that John describes here, this action of untying a sandal, it's an action that would have only been reserved for slaves. They were the ones who were supposed to stoop stoop down and untie the the sandals from a person's foot. And so do you notice what John is saying? The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie Even serving Jesus as a slave would be too great an honor for me. 
That is how great Jesus is. I'm not worthy to be even considered a slave in his presence. Unworthiness. How great is the one who has come to redeem mankind from sin and impart new life. He is worthy to be worshipped. What place does Jesus' superiority have in your life? What place do you give to making Him known, to proclaim not ourselves, not who we are, not what we have done, but to make Him known? What place is there in submitting to Him, to His will and to His word? Let us not obscure the superiority of Christ. But let us herald it. Let us make it known that he is great. Let us make it known that he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And that we would then say, who are we? Jesus Christ, he is Lord. We are but mere servants, even unworthy to be called servants. Because our Christ is so great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Oh, let us understand it and take it in. that We might glory in its truth. And let us not neglect or hide the superiority of Jesus in any way. Let us not miss it. For there were those who even had Jesus in their midst, and they missed it. Let us not proclaim ourselves. Let us not elevate ourselves. But let us think of ourselves with sober judgment. And so seek to give all the glory and honor to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.